0: It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, it's International Women's Day and we are talking with three women who have first-hand experience working in parts of the industry that are dominated by men. We'll hear a bit about their experiences and discuss the work of women in journalism more generally as well as the ABC's decision to take men off the air all day today. Joining me in the studio is Erin Riley, who writes on sport, politics and parenting. Hi, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. Flip Pryor, who is a digital media strategist with the ABC. Hi, Flip. Hi. And joining us on the line is Jeanette Severs, a journalist based in East Gippsland, whose work often appears in Fairfax regional news outlets and other rural and agricultural publications. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, (laughs) Olivia. Drop us a line on Facebook or on Twitter at 4th Estate AU. Erin, I'd like to start with you. You wrote professionally about sport for over a decade, especially the AFL. You even wrote an honest thesis on the history of Australian rules football, so I think it's pretty fair to say that you're an expert on the game. And despite the fact that over half of Australia's journalists are women, in sports journalism women are a small minority. Many female sports journals tell horror stories about not being taken seriously, about being obstructed from doing their job and about receiving abuse seemingly for no other reason than that they are women covering what is traditionally seen as a men's domain. So can you tell us about your experiences? Do you have similar horror stories or is it really not that bad? I certainly have horror stories
1: about the responses from people to my writing. I should clarify, I've written about sport on and off for a decade. And part of the reason for that break was that I found the industry really unwelcoming to women. And now I write largely in a freelance capacity because I found that the sort of day-to-day doing the job of going out to training and doing matches could be, if not openly hostile, certainly very unpleasant at times and and sometimes almost aggressively masculine, but I've received incredible amounts of abuse online due to my writing and very often told, like, go back, get back to the kitchen, basically.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's uh, zoom in on that because in 2014, you wrote an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald that called out the AFL for having a problem with sexism, racism and homophobia and you were subjected to pretty vicious abuse on social media, death threats, threats of sexual violence, and insults about your knowledge and understanding of the game. So first of all, I just want to condemn all of that abuse. I think it's uh, pretty odious. I've read parts of it that were reported, but I'd also like to examine it in order to, to better understand it. I wonder, how much of that abuse do you think stemmed from the fact that what you were saying was threatening to what are mostly male football fans, or how much of it do you think was just because you were a woman that was saying it?
1: I have definitely noticed a difference between when I say such things and when my male colleagues do. Uh, That's not to say they don't receive any backlash, but the tone of the backlash is quite different. But I think it's really important to remember that women have always been football fans and have always been a really large proportion of football fans. They've just been expected to sort of tolerate this environment that isn't always very accommodating toward women. But I definitely think that football's an environment where women have always... been involved and been uh, part of the game. One of my favourite stories is about this um, group of fans, in the, of female fans of the 1890s, pulling out their hat pins after for a particularly contentious decision and chasing the umpire down the street, screaming, kill him, kill him. Um, so women have always been around. They've always been involved, but they just haven't always been given the space to be part of the game. And I think what's threatening is when women start asserting themselves and asserting their place.
2: I was just going to say, I think we saw a bit of that with launch of the AFL Women's this season too. I saw a bit of the stuff that was going around online and, and it came from blokes that I just essentially considered to be dinosaurs. And they were saying things like, probably some of the better stuff that they were saying were things like, they should just be sticking to netball because that's what they're built for. And I thought it's very limiting it doesn't enable women to actually just develop their skills in any area when they're subjected to that kind of limitations.
0: So I know that in the 80s and even into the 90s, female journalists weren't allowed to access male change rooms, which meant that basically they just had to wait outside and hope the coach would come and talk to them. And I think this finally changed in the 90s when Jacqueline Magney took a club that denied her access to the dressing room to the Human Rights Commission. So that's sort of one example of a very obvious obstruction to female sports journalists doing their job. And I think largely that has been removed. But I wonder, Erin, are there any that that remain? Certainly. One of them is the false notion that you need to have
1: played the game in order to do certain roles. And that's um, both in journalism and in other parts of football. So we often we don't have many female commentators. And the fact that they haven't played at the top level is often given as a reason for that, even though, you know, Gerard Whateley and Anthony Hudson haven't either. There's also the, I just don't like the sounds of women's voices, uh, which you hear a lot. Also, uh, appearance standards that women are held to that men aren't. And even just the sort of nature of progression within the industry, I think, can be um, quite difficult for women.
0: So Jeanette, you covered the VFL in country Victoria and I believe you were the first female journalist who was allowed into the Carlton FC change rooms. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
2: Yes, yeah, well, so Dave Parkin invited me to come into the Carlton change rooms and this was back in the um, middle 80s. I knew it was a privilege, I knew it was breaking a, a barrier down and so I was standing there waiting the team to come in they started drifting in and and there was male journalists and other males around me and Then a couple of the, well, actually three committee members came over to me and they said to me, you have to leave. And I said, oh, no, I'm here. And I had a couple of colleagues staying next to me and said, I'm here because Dave Parkin asked me to come in. And they said, no, we don't want your type here. And I was actually really taken aback. I'm thinking, what's my type? I'm a woman. I was a sports reporter. I'd reported on BFL and Country. I'd reported on the National Basketball League. I'd reported Sheffield Shield. And all of a sudden I was being confronted with what I considered to be these dinosaurs (laughs) just didn't want me there and physically docked me and physically and without touching me just kept walking and walking and walking me backwards and I was incensed and I was really wrapped about was three of the guys walked out with me and refused to be in the room, refused to actually participate in the aftermatch reporting and were in solidarity with me and I think that's a mark of those young men at that time that they weren't prepared to put up with that crap whether it was against me as a woman or as a professional or in any capacity.
0: You're listening to 4th Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate, and you're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Erin Riley, Flip Pryor, and Jeanette Severs. Flip, you are a woman in digital media, a part of the journalism industry which does have better female representation than sports journalism, except for in the upper levels of management, where the representation is pretty poor. That's according to Poynter. Before working at the ABC, you worked at Twitter which is a company that came out of Silicon Valley, which is a world of work that also has few women and a bit of a problem with sexism. Can you tell us about your experience working in digital media, both at Twitter and at the ABC?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because I was sitting here thinking when you were asking me, you know, what was it like for me? I haven't found being a woman has been an impediment. I think it's just that it doesn't potentially occur to lots of women That there's jobs there that they might be really interested in. And there's certainly not a great effort that goes on in the part of the industry to reach out and let women know that there's, hey, there's some jobs you'd be really good at. Certainly that's a problem in tech. We are not immune at the ABC. I think we're probably very male heavy in the uh, dev side of things. Twitter, I think we certainly had good representation of, of women locally. But I think as a Silicon Valley company, I think they had just as many problems as the next guy, all dude bros, working in tech, very few female developers. And they talked a lot about diversity, but I don't think they ever really got anywhere close to where they should have been with it.
0: Yeah. The most recent statistics I found was 37% of employees at, at Twitter are women. So,
3: yeah, I wouldn't find that entirely surprising.
0: Yeah. So I wonder, do you think going back to looking at abuse on social media and Twitter is one of those platforms that is renowned for that? Do you think that one of the reasons that they've been so slow to make any meaningful changes to the platform to address this kind of abuse is because it's women who usually experience that abuse and that the company was founded by men and is overwhelmingly led by men (laughs) and employs men? That's
3: an interesting proposition. Um, I, I don't think that that was necessarily behind their slowness. I think they certainly failed to take it as seriously as they should have done for a long time. It was talked about you know, when I worked there that was always recognised there was an issue but I think they just didn't really know what to do about it and they, they talked about the problem but there certainly wasn't you know I think recently there was an announcement of some very specific tools like finally they said you can shut down eggs now I'm pretty sure that You, with all of your abuse, you've suffered online, Erin. I think a lot of them would have been Twitter eggs, right?
1: There were a fair few eggs in there. A fair few
3: eggs. Because they're they're the kind of part of my language, the dickheads, who who get chucked off for abusing largely women and then they come back. It's really easy to set up a new account, set up a new Gmail address and and off you go. We used to call it playing whack-a-mole, basically. And it was terrible. I mean, I remember... um, trying to advise some women who might have been subject to this kind of, you know, relentless stream of abuse and feeling pretty helpless about the tools that they had at their disposal to to tackle it. And the other um, big issue I thought that we had was that there was a responsibility upon the person who was being abused to report the abuse in order for it to be dealt with, which, you know, I, I remember talking to people who were like, well, why should I? Why should I be the one to go through and, you know, write on the form and have that submitted and wait for a response and I thought absolutely right you should not be but this is the only thing I can suggest to you and that always felt manifestly inadequate so you know I'm glad that they are taking steps to address it now and do more about it but I think they should be treating it as a priority issue I think it's made lots of people leave the platform because they said I'm done I I shouldn't have to be subject to abuse. And overwhelmingly
0: women. I mean, there have been Overwhelmingly a few, women. Yeah.
3: And there was also, um, around the time that they were trying to sell the company, which was a short time ago, and they didn't successfully find you know, the bidder that they wanted, there were suggestions at the time that people looked at the scale of the abuse on the platform and went, well, we, we don't really want to have that as one of our problems.
0: Jeanette. You live in a rural area and you cover rural and agricultural issues. And I must admit, I wasn't really able to find statistics on female representation among rural journalists. But uh, I think it's fair to say that agriculture is well known for being an industry dominated by men. So I want to ask about your experience covering rural issues and agricultural issues. Have you been faced with challenges arising from being a woman? So
2: there's perceptions around... How you might be presenting yourself, and believe you me, I spend most of my time in work boots, jeans, and pretty sober clothing. I get, you know, cows shit on me, bulls charge me, and and um, I help farmers to round up their animals and draft them, and all kinds of things. Get covered in chaff when they're cutting, you know, when they're harvesting wheat or barley, and it can get pretty messy and dirty. And there's just a perception that. A female journalist doesn't really know how to um, handle herself out there, but my reality is that most of the time I'm treated with respect, I'm treated with integrity, and I'm treated as if I know what I'm talking about. Now, having said that, there are a few issues, and I think it's important that when you do come across something that is discriminatory or abusive uh, or assaulting, that, that it's actually called out, so, you know... There's been instances where I've had to tell guys that what they've done is sexual sexual assault or what they have told me they're going to do will be sexual assault. I do do a safety assessment for every job I go to because a lot of the work that I do is in workplaces that are highly industrialised, have animals and um, and are in isolated places. So it's not just... You know, being in that place, it's actually getting there and, and things like that, too. So I've got a desk diary in my office at home and, and i always put in there where i'm going so my husband knows where i'm going to be and knows when i should expect to be back home again too and you know before mobile phones i've had some pretty sticky situations that have included death threats and assaults and things like that are just a reality unfortunately
0: i wonder if you think another effect of the fact that there are fewer women covering agriculture and and rural issues is that Less stories of women in that world, women who are farmers or who work in rural areas are told. Do you think that that's the case?
2: It's really interesting because I think there is a perception that women are very much a non-partner in the agribusiness, and they're very much a major partner. In fact, I know, Quite a few women who own their own agribusinesses, whether that's a farm or a you know a manufacturer of some sort. So some of them are actually owned outright by women, and some of them are owned in partnership with with men, whether that's brothers, husbands, or some other partnership. But there is a perception that it's a male it's a male industry. There's only blokes that work in there, and the women are making scones and cups of tea, which is actually so far removed from the reality, it's not funny. Many a time I've had the bloke be making the cup of tea and I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago and I sent it off to the editor and I made a point of saying, look, in this partnership, which was also a marriage, I said I've put the woman's name first because she actually owns the farm and if you put the male's name first, then everyone will know that there's a major mistake made and I don't want that major mistake going under my byline. And I was really wrapped because they actually did keep it as the woman's name first. And I think if we can actually consciously make sure that we respect those kind of things and also that we consciously place women into photographs that represent agriculture and rural activities, and they're very much a part of that pictorial depiction, then we can we can slowly change minds. But, you know, it, I've been doing this for a long time and some of the editors I work with are fabulous women. Some of the editors I've worked with in the past have been fabulous women. Um, some of the editors I work with are fabulous blokes. But then you get one you know, or two that just don't see it that way and, and they keep just depicting a, a patriarchal misrepresentation of what the reality is.
0: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate, and I am speaking with Erin Riley, Flip Pryor, and Jeanette Severs. Lastly, I want to talk about a bold decision taken by the ABC to lead all of their TV and radio news broadcasts with female hosts for all of their programming on International Women's Day. The network also promoted content highlighting the work and contributions of women throughout the day across TV, radio, and online. The men who usually host shows, such as Mark Colvin on PM or Jeremy Fernandez on News 24, were still required to come to work but were given other tasks. The Daily Tele had a pretty hot take on the ABC's decision, running a front page story on Tuesday titled, in all caps, off their dial, in which Shari Markson slammed the ABC for what she described as a patronising move that suggested, quote, that men need to be banned before women can get a prominent hosting gig. She also wasn't alone in her opinion, however. She managed to rally the support of Sky News host and former Chief of Staff to Tony Abbott, Peter Credlin, who called it a tokenistic gesture. Labour MP Anne Ali and former ABC chairman Maurice Newman also went on the record describing the move as tokenistic. Angela Mollard wrote a similarly outraged piece for news.com.au calling the move discriminatory. So I'll ask everyone on the panel's opinion. Was it a tokenistic gesture? Flip, I'll start with you.
3: <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> Look, I must say, I'm not speaking on behalf of the ABC here. I'm, you know, not here to do that. But I just don't see it that way. I, I think the intention of the event was to highlight the significant female talent that we have at the ABC. I have not heard a skerrick of complaint around the organisation. There has been no coalition of colvin's and fernandez is getting together and complaining bitterly into their coffees in the downstairs cafeteria i think everyone sees it for exactly what it is which is just highlighting our fabulous talent showing off the fact that we have so many women in so many fantastic positions in journalism we've got the most fearsome female interviewers we've got we've got the works and i think we're very proud of that and that's what we wanted to show off i think suggestion that the ABC has a tokenistic approach to women in its um, workforce or that it's trying to show, oh, hey, we've got women here. I just think that's a ridiculous proposition. And I was really surprised. I've been buried under a rock for the last couple of days for obvious reasons, but I was very surprised to, to pop my head out and see so much criticism. And I really think um, there's probably far more interesting things to write about than that. Erin? I think the
1: key word here is tokenistic and tokenistic is such a loaded term. I think if you replace it with symbolic, I'd probably agree. Yes, it's a symbolic gesture, but symbols matter. And that icon and that idea is something that's inspirational and it's something that's sort of, this is what we're striving towards. Not necessarily women in all positions, obviously, but for women to be able to fill every position. And I think that there's nothing wrong with a symbol like that. So I reject the idea it's tokenistic but I do think it was symbolic. Jeanette?
2: I did a bit of research on this because I had a bit like Flip I'd been under a bit of a rock and flat out working and hadn't paid much attention to it and one of the things that annoys me is when and it happens a lot is when news limited journalists criticize other media organizations and, and I always think Where there's criticism, you have to look at it and reflect it back on them and say, well, what's what's your real problem here? And I often get The Australian on a Monday just to see what they're writing in the media part of their um, publication on that particular day. And let's let's flip it back to them and let's actually put a lens on them and say, are you being tokenistic or not? The Australian Business Review, which is the second half of The Australian on Monday, has a lovely front page picture of a CEO who happens to be a woman and for some reason they photographed her in a kitchen There's a lovely cup of tea on the shelf behind her. And it's obviously a kitchen bench behind her and I've got no idea why in heaven they actually did that because that's what's that got to do with the job she's actually done? really doing. She's the CEO of a biotech company, for goodness sake. (laughs) And then we look at at sport. And I don't know if anyone else is aware of this, but on the weekend, Brisbane Lions women AFL team actually got clear, again clear on the ladder, which means that they're fairly certain of getting into the finals.
1: And probably hosting a grand final.
2: Yes, exactly. And Western Sydney women's team also won. And the Australian, as we know, is New South Wales based and looks at New South Wales mostly and every now and again does something tokenistic about another state. So let's look at the back page. And the back page is the India-Australia cricket match, a, um, a piece by Patrick Smith, which is, you know, not worth reading, and the Eels. And then we look on the inside back page, there's still nothing about women's sport. And then the next page again, there's still nothing about women's sport, and when we finally get to women's sport, we're four pages in from the back page. It is actually the women's AFL, but they don't lead with that. It's only a couple of hundred words. And what they write about is the fact the Brisbane Lions coach actually broke a pane of glass because he was so excited about the match. And then we're three quarters of, or two thirds through the, the article before we actually find out that Brisbane is one game clear on the ladder. Now, if that was actually ASL men, it would be on the back page that Brisbane is one game clear and on top of the ladder. Or it might be second page inside, but it wouldn't be four pages inside. So is the Australian, is Newscom tokenistic towards women?
0: Flip, as you mentioned, ABC has pretty much the opposite to a tokenistic approach to to women in its workforce. There is a... There is a big staff of pretty fearsome journalists and people working in other parts of the organisation. And I think, in fact, many people might not have even noticed the change. So I'm just wondering if you think that News Limited has actually and perhaps accidentally done the ABC a huge favour by giving them a a huge whack of free promotion. Of
3: course they have. (laughs) (laughs) I'm relatively certain that nothing they do is designed to give us a favour about anything. Um, But... uh Look, I think the publicity is great. Thanks very much, Shari. It's been uh, awesome. But I just think that, you know, the, the reasonable person out there is going to look at that coverage and, and they're reminded of how fantastic our people really are, to be honest. I mean, you know, look at the likes of Lee Sales, Ryan Kelly. Um, just, there's so many amazing women that work there. And um, I think it's great that they got highlighted. And End of story.
2: From a regional perspective, we often have women on the regional ABC as presenters and it didn't sound much different this morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Some publishers in the US are marking the day in an opposite way. New York Magazine's women's site, The Cut, will not publish any new content for the day, Bustle, a popular news website aimed at millennial women and its sister site, Romper are taking the day off from publishing and are giving all of their staff what they're calling a paid volunteer day. And Jezebel won't be publishing any stories by any female staff. So it's in relation to, more broadly, a general strike of women that's been called in the States. But I wonder, Erin, do you think that that's a better way to go about it, to show just what's missing when the women aren't there? Well, I have to confess,
1: I have another hat that I should probably put on here, which is I'm one of the organised of the Women's March in Sydney and it's the Women's March organisation that's coordinating the Day Without a Woman worldwide and um, it wasn't something we could organise in Australia but it was something we encouraged people to support and I do think it's incredibly powerful for women to show how much we contribute to the economy and to the workforce Uh, but it really only works if women all over can do it and um, that was something that we struggled with in Australia was being organized enough to be able to do that and there were challenges around getting women who were in casual work or who had caring work with no one to step in for them to, uh, to be involved so I do think there's real power to a strike or to this broader idea of a day without a woman But it is uh, something that only works when it's not just at sort of the top levels, it's throughout society. Because otherwise I think it's other women who have to pick up the slack.
0: One final question, which I will direct to you again, Erin, because of your expertise writing for parents. So the ABC is the national broadcaster, the national public broadcaster. It reaches every corner of the country. And I wonder, do you think that this maybe sets a bad example for children in reinforcing a, a strong division between women and men on International Women's Day? I think as parents, it's our responsibility
1: to talk with kids openly and honestly about the fact society treats men and women differently, even if that's not a good thing. I think that kids pick up on that really, really early and there's lots of evidence that shows that. And so I think it's important to have these open and honest conversations with them. And if this can spur those conversations on, then I think that's fantastic.
0: All right, that's it from us on Fourth Estate and on this International Women's Day special. Thank you to my guests, Erin Riley. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Flip Pryor. Thank you. And Jeanette Sever. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast, drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter, and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. My name is Olivia Rosenman, and you can catch us at the same time next week. (laughs)